Congress. It's good to be with you both, those who are here present and those who are here virtually. It's a good thing we worship the living God. If we were worshiping idols, then it would be really crucial to be in the presence of the idol. But we worship a God who created heaven and earth and who is everywhere and by his spirit is able to minister to us where we are. So that is a wonderful assurance. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 38, and we're going to read the whole chapter. Genesis 38, this is the inspired and errant word of God. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. And he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chaziv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shalah, my son, grows up for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adalamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you, you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? He, she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goats by his friend the Adalamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the man of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the man of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, 
the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shalah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Peretz. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Spirit who interprets your word to us. And we pray that by the Spirit's power we would understand your word, that we would see how it points us to Christ and to the gospel, how it convicts us of our sin and shows us our need of that glorious Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there anyone here who comes from a dysfunctional family? I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, especially not if you're sitting at home with your parents. But I would imagine that there are a number of us who could share our testimony in that regard. Uh, horror stories of the problems perhaps that we grew up with, even in Christian families. But I would suggest that few of us could, could match the dysfunction of the family line of Jesus. In Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, he name-checks four women. Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, Ruth the Moabitess, Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. Out of that list, Tamar became pregnant by sleeping with her father-in-law. Ruth was a foreign widow, a Moabitess, an outsider to God's people. Bathsheba committed adultery with King David. You know, if these people were in our family tree, we would want to hush them up, embarrassed about how messed up our forebears were. But not only does God not hush up the messier parts of Jesus' ancestry, he foregrounds them by including each of these dodgy women in the genealogy. It is as if to say Jesus came to save people from their sins. Are you surprised then that he came from a long line of sinners? But I want to suggest to us that that should be a profound encouragement to all of us who not only come from messy family situations, but often inhabit messy families of our own. It's not just our ancestors who are deeply broken people with dysfunctional marriages and ingrained patterns of sin. We too are all deeply broken. Many of us struggle in our own marriages and with our own besetting sins as well. We ourselves are those families of sinners that Jesus came to save. Well, today we're going to explore this story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. It is a sidebar, if you like, in the larger story of Joseph that runs from Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50. His brothers, including Judah, had plotted to kill Joseph. They seized him and threw it into his pit, and then they changed their mind. Not because of moral scruples, but in order to make a quick buck by selling him to some Ishmaelite traders who just happened to be passing. And so the brothers sold Joseph down to Egypt as a slave and then went home to their father, taking along with them Joseph's fancy coat, which they dipped in some animal blood. 
And then they showed that coat to their father, asking him, do you recognize this coat? And Jacob naturally assumed that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. He was devastated with grief. And that's where our story picks up. With Judah leaving his family home and settling among the Canaanites. Like Joseph, who went down to Egypt, Judah also went down. Only in his case, his departure from the family was voluntary. Don't miss the fact that the promised family of blessing is disintegrating in front of our eyes in a spectacular maelstrom of of violence and broken relationships. Remember, God promised Abraham that his family would become a great nation. A harmonious community of nations that would be a blessing to all peoples on earth. And yet just three generations in, this family of promise is completely unraveling. If this is what it looked like to live in a blessed family, Judah wanted nothing to do with it. And you can hardly blame him. Judah's experience of life in this family was anything but a shower of blessings. He was the fourth son of Leah, Jacob's unwanted and unloved wife. In Genesis 33, the second-rate status of Leah and her sons was visibly reinforced when Jacob was returning home to Canaan. He was so concerned about the potentially hostile reception that he might receive from his brother Esau that he divided up his party and he put Leah and her sons in the front as human shields to facilitate the escape of Rachel and Joseph if it should become necessary. No wonder Judah grew up with significant relational and emotional baggage. And perhaps some of you also know what it is to grow up in such a family situation where there is a favorite in the family and it is not you. Like Judah, we too may have dealt with that pain in all kinds of less than holy ways. Well, rather than be a second-class citizen in this family of blessing, Judah struck out on his own for a fresh start among the Canaanites. He decided he'd suffered enough humiliation and indignity within the clan of Abraham. But of course, in turning his back on that family, Judah is turning his back on God and God's promises. Judah's immersion among the Canaanites, where he found himself a close friend and a wife, rapidly involved becoming like them in their false worship and their sin, just as it earlier did for Lot. But Judah's problems were not merely that he learned wrong ideas from his Canaanite neighbors. Rather, Judah perpetuated and exacerbated exactly the same pathologies that he had learned from his own father, Jacob, dooming his attempts at a fresh start from the beginning. Like his father, Judah had a messed up marriage. He didn't exactly romance his wife. We, we never actually learn uh, even the name of his wife. All we hear is that Judah saw her and took her, verse 2. Elsewhere in Genesis, that language is suggestive of desire and transgression. Eve saw and took the forbidden fruit. Right before the flood, the sons of God saw and took the daughters of men. Genesis 12, Pharaoh saw and took Sarah. Genesis 34, Shechem saw and took Dinah. Like his father, Judah was a failure as a husband. 
And as a parent, Judah was distant and disengaged. He named his firstborn son Ur, which is evil written backwards in Hebrew, which is not exactly a positive naming strategy. And even though Judah named his firstborn, it looks as if his wife named his second and third sons. In fact, according to verse 5, Judah may have been in an entirely different town when Shelah was born, a town called Chaziv, which some scholars translate as a name meaning city of lies. That would be fitting. Deceit is a consistent feature of Jacob's family, and it's the same with Judah's dealings with Tamar. Fifteen to twenty years later, the fallout of Judah's parental failure becomes evident to all. Of his now grown sons, two are deemed so evil by God that he personally strikes them dead. The last time that God put people to death in Genesis, it was the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the first time in Scripture that this kind of judgment is rendered against specific individuals. So much for Judah's hope of a fresh start. By the time the dust had settled, he had lost two out of his three sons, and his entire family line was in jeopardy. He now only had one son left, and according to the conventions of the culture, it was his duty to give Tamar to Shalah next. But Tamar's marriage partners were 0 for 2 in the category of staying alive. And so Judah sent Tamar back to her father's house, shirking his responsibility to take care of her. But at the same time, he could hardly then acquire a different wife for Shalah without admitting that he was old enough to fulfill his obligations to Tamar. The brokenness in this family just keeps piling up. And Judah's logic was curiously self-deceiving. Judah had sold his own brother, ditched his family, plunged into a shotgun wedding with a Canaanite woman, run with the wrong crowd, and ignored his own children, but he was confident that those two mounds of fresh dirt that used to be his sons were obviously Tamar's fault and not his. The level of Judah's blindness is astonishing. As outside observers, we can see so clearly that he is in the wrong. And yet we so naturally do the same thing, don't we? Like Judah, we also inhabit cities of lies. Distorted versions of reality overlaid with a thin layer of our own claims to innocence. All of us suffer from the actions of other people. But having recognized that we sometimes suffer because of somebody else's sin, we twist that knowledge in order to find ways to blame all of our suffering on the sins of other people. We become blind to our own guilt. And that blindness makes the harmful effect of our sin against others even worse. I can see that in my own marriage. There are numerous ways in which I see that I construct my own city of lies. With me as the innocent victim, when at the root of many of my problems lie my own sinful patterns of relationship, many in turn learned from my own family of origin. And even knowing that to be true, it's so hard to maintain a clear grasp of that reality instead of slipping constantly back into a comfortable haze of self-deception. Well, in Judah's case, His brokenness and blindness left Tamar feeling trapped. 
In the ancient world, people were often married shortly after puberty, so Tamar was probably still quite young, perhaps no older than mid to late teens. And consider what this young girl has already experienced in her life. Her first husband was struck down by God, leaving her a widow already as a young teenager. Her second husband, Onan, married her out of obligation and then sexually abused her. You know, the practice of Leverite marriage was intended to take care of the widow's welfare, as well as to perpetuate the family line of the deceased husband. But if Onan raised up a child for his brother Ur, that child would inherit his brother's share of the inheritance instead of him. And so he was willing to erase the memory of his brother entirely, just as Joseph's brothers had done. And even worse, Onan turned that familial duty into an opportunity for exploitation. You see, if Onan had no intention of fathering children to take Ur's place, there was no reason for him to engage in intercourse with Tamar. Onan was using defenseless Tamar for his personal sexual gratification. The word whenever in verse 9 highlights the fact that Onan's behavior was repeated and regular. And so then Tamar's second husband was struck dead, leaving her now two times a widow and still without a child. Privately, she had been shamed by the sexual abuse of Onan. Publicly, she was shamed by the perception that she was under a curse. If, if Judah did not give her shalash, she would remain trapped forever at the lowest level of society, dependent upon the charity of her family to survive. Tamar's name, palm tree, as it translates, is an image of beauty. But this young girl became damaged goods, cast off from society, collateral damage from the sins of the members of God's family, who by their sins were shedding shame among the nations instead of blessing. And in her suffering and to shame, she represents many women down through the ages who have been used and abused by the men who ought to have protected and cherished them, even within the family of God. But that this was not the end of her story is also a beacon of hope for others who feel themselves to be sharing her status as damaged goods. Our God can bring blessing and good even out of stories of terrible abuse. Well, as time passed, Tamar sought a way to escape from her circumstances, and she did so by setting a trap for Judah. Clearly, she had figured out that trickery is the way to get ahead in this family, and she could play that game too. Judah was headed off to check his flocks at sheep shearing time, which was the cultural equivalent of student trips to Florida at spring break. Therefore, all Tamar had to do was to be there and be available. Tamar smoothly played the part of the prostitute and negotiated for Judah to leave his signet and his cord and his personal staff until payment would be made. In the process, you see, Tamar secured the ancient equivalent of Judah's wallet and driving license, uh, specific markers that were enough to identify Judah. Ironically, this took place at the entrance to Anayim, which literally translated means the opening of the eyes. 
Judah, you see, was blind to Tamar's identity as well as to his own hypocrisy. But the consequences of that encounter would ultimately serve to open Judah's eyes. In many ways, Tamar was the innocent victim of the sins of Judah and his family. The trap she laid for Judah was about her getting justice, about righting a wrong. And yet at the same time, her trap was risky, not to mention highly questionable ethically, morally, and legally. She was intentionally engaging in prostitution to entrap Judah. Their relationship as father-in-law and daughter-in-law raises the issue of incest. As a result, the story strongly emphasizes that Judah did not knowingly sleep with his daughter-in-law and that he did not have any further sexual encounters after this incident. Tamar set out to right a wrong, but she did so in a profoundly disturbing and wrong way. Of course, that's a common reality, isn't it? When we suffer at the hands of others, no one remains fully innocent. When we are wronged, we often respond wrongly. We may lack Judah's position of authority to enforce his oppression or Tamar's audacity to fight back. But we can still wage war in our minds against those who have hurt us by nursing bitterness or harboring resentment or reveling in their sufferings and failures. Sometimes we turn that hurt inward in a cycle of self-loathing and self-harm. Sometimes people respond by retreating from relationships with other people and with God, finding our safety and trying to control every aspect of our existence. In our brokenness, we continue this cycle of sin and counter-sin in a way that makes some kind of sense within our own stories, even though it doesn't give us the safety or satisfaction that we so desperately crave. Is there a way out? Is there a way in which we can break this cycle of sufferers turn sinners and victims turn perpetrators? Where can we find hope of breaking free from these bitter, painful patterns of repeated sin in which we hurt ourselves as well as those around us? Well, there is indeed hope, but it does not come from anyone who is already caught up in that cycle. If we are to be rescued, someone from outside has to break in and arrest the cycle of sinful action and reaction. And so appropriately enough, this story in Genesis 38 ends with the birth of twins, one of whom is called Peretz, breach or breakthrough. His name is a sign that the personal stories in this chapter end with twin breakthroughs for Judah and Tamar. The occasion for Judah's breakthrough began with a rumor. Tamar has been acting like a prostitute and is pregnant. Now, from Judah's perspective, that report provided the long-awaited opportunity to get rid of Tamar, which meant that Shelah could finally be married to someone else. Tamar could be condemned as a slut. Judah could position himself as a fine, upstanding member of the community, remaining blind to his own sin hypocrisy, and double standards. After all, Judah himself had been with a prostitute just three months earlier. Judah knew that, his companion Chira knew that, and all the residents of Anayim knew that. 
But amazingly, even in Judah's self-righteous hypocrisy, God nonetheless showed him mercy. It came through a simple message to Judah from Tamar. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. Examine them. Verse 25. And as he heard those words, a light went on. Judah was staring at his own personal belongings and he finally saw the truth. She is more in the right than I. After years of blaming everyone else for his problems, Judah finally recognized and acknowledged his own guilt. He had lied to Tamar. He had denied her her rights. He had left her without any recourse. He was quite literally guilty of exactly the same sin for which he now wanted her killed. What she had done out of desperation, he had only done to satisfy his desires. And at the same time, the irrefutable evidence of his own guilt was also the irrefutable evidence of the lie that he had believed about Tamar. It was not her fault that her past sexual partners had all perished. She was not cursed. His survival was living proof of that. But it's not just Judah's relationship to Tamar that was transformed by the acknowledgement of his sin. Tamar's words examine these parallel exactly what Judah and his brothers said to their father Jacob when they brought him Joseph's bloody coat. Examine these. See, if it was one thing that Judah gained from all of these painful experiences, all of the losses that he suffered, it was a greater sympathy for his father. Judah knew now from personal experience what it was like to lose sons. Like Jacob, he too had tried desperately to protect his youngest son, even to the hurt of others. He too had been duped by a mysterious veiled woman into a different relationship from the one he had expected. Just as Jacob had not recognized Leah, so Judah had failed to recognize Tamar. And Judah's confrontation with the true depths of his own sin ultimately fostered reconciliation with his brothers and especially with his father. It was recognizing his own brokenness that drove him back to reconnect with his deeply broken family. And as the rest of the book of Genesis unfolds, we realize just how pivotal that change that has been wrought in Judah is. The events of Genesis 38 probably stretch out of about 20 to 22 years, a period that exactly matches the time that Joseph passed in Egypt in chapters 39 to 42. Those two stories, you see, are running in parallel. Now, on the one hand, that highlights the difference between Judah and Joseph. Joseph remained faithful to God in the face of severe sexual temptation from Potiphar's wife. But on the other hand, it also means that Judah's confession of guilt to Tamar must have come shortly before the events of Genesis 43. In that chapter, a now chastened Judah shows compassion to his father. And he pledges that he himself would, would bear the blame if he failed to bring Benjamin safely home again from Egypt. And then when Benjamin was falsely accused of having stolen Joseph's cup and condemned to remain a slave in Egypt forever, Judah stepped in to take his place, enabling his brother to walk free. Judah 
finally employing his natural abilities as a leader to save the family instead of to eliminate his unwanted younger brother. Unless we too have our eyes open, we will remain as blind to our sin as Judah was. We too tell outright lies and spin the truth to our advantage, desperate to maintain our own right standing and innocence. We cling on to the idea that we are more righteous than those around us, at least most of those around us. It's amazing how naturally blame-shifting and denial spring to our lips. I was tired. I was not at my best. If only you hadn't said it quite like that. If only you wouldn't misunderstand what I'm saying. We're all trapped in the denial of our guilt and our rampant self-deception to which we're usually totally blind. But the story of Judah is the story of Petach Enayim, the opening of the eyes and the opening of our eyes also. In the Gospels, time and time again, Jesus gives sight to those who are blind. God is the one who reveals himself to us and then reveals to us who we really are. That can be a painful encounter Like emerging from a darkened room on a sunny day, our confrontation with our sin may dazzle and terrify us. We didn't know that we had something like that within us. It hurts our pride. It embarrasses us. I think that must have felt for Judah. He eventually gave up seeking recovery of those most important personal belongings because of the fear that he'd be mocked by the residents of Enayim. But the revelation that he was the father of Tamar's child must have been far more embarrassing. But there's no way for us to learn humility other than by repeatedly being confronted by the embarrassing, shameful, foolish, hurtful, sinful things that we do and say. Humility is very important to God. And he seems intent on working this virtue out in our lives. And typically this happens precisely through revealing our brokenness and helplessness to change ourselves. But the other amazing thing to which Judah's broken and rebuilt life points us is that we don't need to be utterly crushed by our sin. Having our eyes opened, seeing the wrong that we do, the hurt that we cause to others can be incredibly demoralizing. I've wrestled with that feeling sometimes often in my own life. I can feel exhausted and discouraged after yet another situation in which I've hurt Barb through my own shortcomings, through my own sin. Why can't I figure out how to love her better and then live that out consistently? The answer is, I'm a desperately broken sinner. And God wants me to become more acquainted with that reality. More acquainted with my own prickly defensiveness, my own fear of incompetence, my own desire for affirmation just as I am without change or repentance. God has good reasons to show me my weakness, my sin, my failure, to equip me to love the gospel more and to love others better. You know, the story of Judah reminds us of Jesus's words to Peter right before his failure, where he denied Jesus three times. Jesus said to him, when you have turned again, 
strengthen your brothers. See, just as Jesus had a purpose in Peter's denial and restoration, so too God had a purpose in Judah's 20 years of self-deception and blindness. God had something positive that he purposed to accomplish in and through Judah, precisely through demonstrating to him his own sin and brokenness. God can and does crack the hardest of hearts. God can and does humble and reclaim the biggest of sinners, including you and me. The improbable repentance of Judah is incredibly good news because all of us are so much bigger sinners than we imagine with far harder hearts than we realize. And Tamar's breakthrough was equally glorious. One moment, having compromised her innocence in a bid for her rights, she was headed for the flames as a condemned prostitute. The next moment, she had been cleared by Judah's confession. She is more in the right than I. The family disgrace, the girl who brought bad luck to everyone with whom she came in contact, was welcomed back into a family that had discovered it was just as broken as she was. Tamar's breakthrough placed her in the very middle of God's saving purposes, not just for that family, but for all humanity. The birth of Tamar's twins echoes the previous birth of twins back in Genesis 25. Like Esau, Zerah is remembered for his association with red, in this case the red cord around his wrist. But it's Peretz, whose name means breakthrough, who sneaks out in front of his brother, much like grandfather Jacob had done. And Tamar thereafter appears at two crucial points later in the scriptures. At the wedding of Ruth and Boaz, the elders prayed, May your house be like the house of Peretz, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Once thought cursed, Tamar's memory is now being invoked as a model of God's blessing. And through Ruth and Boaz, Tamar thus became the mother of King David. And then centuries later, Tamar appears again in Matthew's genealogy as the mother in the line of Jesus himself. Through God's intervention, Tamar, the childless, abused, discarded Canaanite widow, became a mother of the Messiah. What an incredible picture of God's grace. The God who exalts the humble and who brings down the proud. We're all damaged goods. Profoundly broken, just like uh, Judah, just like Tamar. And that is precisely why Jesus came to this earth. Jesus is the ultimate breakthrough son who came to seek and to save that which was lost. In the person of Jesus, the son of God stepped into history and chose to be born into the sort of family that would provoke tabloid headlines and community gossip. Through Judah and Tamar, Jesus was the son of a sinner and a prostitute. The perfect lineage for the man who would spend so much of his time here on earth with sinners and prostitutes. Telling them joyfully about the triumph of grace over all of our sin and failure. He brought grace, acceptance, transformation and hope for sinning sufferers and victim perpetrators. Jesus didn't just bring grace. 
He also brought us that true righteousness that we all lack and all need. And Jesus accomplished this by inverting what Judah did to Tamar. Judah blamed Tamar for his sins to maintain his own innocence, planning to put her to death. But Jesus took our blame and our sin into himself, taking upon himself the death that we deserved at the cross. And what is more, Jesus covers us now with his perfection. Jesus doesn't say, oh, your sin doesn't matter. We're all sinners after all. On the contrary, Jesus lived that perfect life of righteousness and love that we never could. And now he gives that perfect righteousness to us as a free gift. That's what Jesus means when he says to us, you are righteous. He means I have taken away your guilt and I have given you my perfect holiness, making you acceptable to the Father. In that way, he removes our curse forever and welcomes us safely into the family of God where we can be loved and blessed by him, broken sinners though we still are. He promises to complete that good work that he's begun in us on the last day. The sin that still weighs us down will not be our constant companion forever. On that last day, we will lay down our burden once and for all because in Christ we will be declared the righteousness of God. Have you experienced that breakthrough in your life? Have you had your eyes opened to the gospel message of love and forgiveness, the reality of your sin, and the reality of the salvation that is there for you in Christ? If not, let today be the day when you come and you bow your knees and ask Jesus to provide you the righteousness you need. And if you have had that breakthrough, if you have had your eyes open to the depths of your sin and the reality of the gospel, then respond. Rejoice with great joy that your sin is fully atoned for, that you have been welcomed into this perfect, if presently dysfunctional, family of God, just as you are.